to you, Pepsi. This is a new podcast project of mine made for totally self-indulgent purposes, partly to get out ideas that have been clanging around in my brain, part getting over the crippling fear of my own voice. It's honestly been one of my greatest insecurities. I don't know how many dudes have been called ma'am over the phone by telemarketers, but I'm still processing that trauma 15 years later. So... But these late capitalist times demand that we confront our fears. And, you know, maybe that's a little pompous, but along with this low-grade narcissism is the content and takes all of you crave. So hopefully you can carve out some time in your week to let me assault your ears with this strong ideology. The name comes from an article, I'm just going to say, it was in The Atlantic, and it was wondering if America gets into the quote-unquote dyspeptic leftism of Bernie Sanders and got me wondering what leftist messaging that didn't evoke indigestion would sound like. So here we are. I know it's not pretty, this auditory, sad, millennial, beta excuse for masculinity. I don't even have vocal fry. It's more one of those air fry machines. No grease. But isn't that what capitalism is like these days? No Vaseline. So think of this voice dialectically. We propel ourselves into our own future because we have no choice. You'll get used to it, and hopefully I'll get better. That's all I'm going to say for now. So without much more ado, let's cue the music and get into the Rick and Morty evisceration none of you have been waiting for.
having an entire day off just to recuperate was incredible and it really and I didn't realize like normally you know I pride on having a good immune system where I can get over a cold in three days but that's assuming I don't have to do anything else when you're when you still have to go to work you can't recuperate and also be at work so it prolongs your sickness and even though then I had to go back the next day just that one day of being able to just sit and just you know focus and I you don't even have to focus just you know sit and just like be and just focus on getting better just being able to have time that is dedicated to you instead of generating profits for someone else because you have something that everyone goes through and being just asserting yourself in doing what you're supposed to do even that was kind of a revelation for such a conflict averse person as myself anyway during that time i watched all three seasons of rick and morty in succession and it was one of those revelations like like the first time i did cocaine i admitted i immediately understood the 80s or like the first time i dipped i immediately understood like what being in kentucky was like and in that same vein watching rick and morty it made me horrifyingly understand the youtube nazi adjacent alt-right Jordan Peterson acolyte milieu that I had ignored up until this point. And made me realize it's not just a show, this is a movement in, you know, the mind of the people that assault McDonald's employees for chicken McNugget sauce. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to be breaking down why Rick and Morty represents a foundational text for this contingent of people that we have to engage with now even if we don't think that they're worth it because they can cause a lot of damage anyway so we'll start off with the character of morty who obviously is the audience that is the person most relatable in the show and you know he's adolescent meek white suburban he doesn't really have any personality or motivation even when he asserts himself it's always just to like move the story along he never really comes out of his character you know his main trait is that he's horny but that's not a well-developed character and it gets pretty clear that his main function is to absorb rick's genius most episodes involve some amount of Morty trying to assert his conventional morality, only to have it laughably dissolved by the harsh realities of the interdimensional world that Rick, who is the real protagonist, operates in. And so we get to Rick, the, uh, the obviously aspirational character. So if everyone is Morty, 
then they get to fantasize about being Rick. So it's a pretty depressingly simple portrayal. He's an interdimensional, hard-drinking badass with sexual liaisons across multiple galaxies. But the twist is, compared to other action heroes, he's a nerd. And that's why it's the perfect escapist fantasy for this new generation. Because sort of one of the key things about Rick and Morty is its representation of how nerd culture has become mainstream. Which is to say that, like... Before, nerds, shit, sci-fi people was for quote-unquote smart people. But now that it's been elevated to the mass culture level, everyone buys into this. And so the scientific tech wizard is now sort of the new hero of this, you know, postmodern, late capitalist age. And this is why people think watching the show makes them smart. And it's important to notice that even though there are flaws to Rick's character, you know, in the sort of the typical Hollywood sense, they're not really flaws because he never gets punished for them. But instead, any flaws in his characters are just byproducts of his sheer genius and therefore sort of actually good, or at least the core fans and people that most internalize Rick's character don't see them as problems. He can do whatever he wants because he knows everything. He basically has limited, limitless power. And this is, you know, sort of a function of laziness on the writer's behalf. It's like 50 Superman, where they keep expanding his power to get him out of situations. But that means that he has no limitations. So what does he do? He's basically the ultimate libertarian fantasy. He's kind of an ubermensch for extremely online. He goes through the multiverse wreaking havoc, engaging in petty opportunism and if not outright arms trafficking with no accountability towards anyone. Sometimes he justifies it for his quote-unquote work, but you never see what that is. And, and even if that could be reduced to just that being his character and his flaws, the problem is that the show tells on itself. And the way it really tells on itself is through the Council of Ricks. Because while other heroes could retreat into a a solipsism of loneliness, this show creates multiple dimensions where it creates multiple dimensions where people are able to interact with other versions of themselves, best exemplified in the Council of Ricks, where other realities of Ricks actually do understand the purpose and functionality of collective organizing and so it does suggest that a rick level genius can be accountable to others and cooperative but what is key is that it then rejects that behavior as pathetic and naive and then the rick that we are most familiar with the rick in this universe that we operate in is the most antisocial and reckless Rick, and he is actually the truest Rick of them all, because he is the most antisocial and reckless. And even worse than just suggesting that, you know, this archetypal American antisocial white man is the truest version of any form of consciousness, is that 
it creates a sort of platonic formism that is not materialist and sets up a paradigm where people in their material lives can never be good enough and they have to strive to be the truest version of themselves whatever the social consequences which of course is always a privileged subjectivity but even that could be explained away and dealt with if it weren't for jerry where really the show's philosophy that it's too cowardly to admit to but it's patently obvious brings it home because jerry is the ultimate modern eunuch beta male and if there's any possible question about Rick's behavior being glorified, you have to always understand that his behavior is in contrast to Jerry, who is never glorified ever. He's always the worst possible thing never to be idealized. He is just absolute scum. He's the cautionary tale of masculinity lost, dominated, out-earned by his wife, and they relish in making him as pathetic as possible and even in the multi-dimensional situations where there is a rickiest rick the truest rick and even morty there's like an evil morty there's different forms of morty every jerry in every single dimension is exactly the same so those are the male characters but there are a couple female characters which are engaged with but not very well you have beth which is rick's daughter and jerry's wife and she's actually probably the most interesting character in terms of having actual flaws and motivations but her world completely revolves around rick and she'll sacrifice anything to keep him around and it gets a little bit creepy honestly in terms of like the tropes about daddy and then you have summer who doesn't really have a personality though they try to give her a little more to do most of her traits are just generic annoying teenage girl and whenever she does anything it still sort of seems tangential and not related to the core thesis of the show and the core fans recognize this and i think that's probably why they complained so much about season three being taken over by SJWs just because they give some more things to do and they try to develop her character, but there's still no sort of understanding of why she has to be in the show. She's just sort of there. And both Beth and Summer represent classic flat female characters who don't really have agency of their own. The most agency that Summer has is in the Mad Max episode. She's just reacting, and then she goes back to her regular life. She doesn't have a significant function in the show. So that's the characters, but even if you get into the themes and motifs of the show, it's still a hornet's nest of shit. You get to understand that the main thrust of the show is that it's too smart for its own good while still profitable and that's really sort of the late capitalist privileged subjectivity of a lot of things and the best way this is represented is in the catchphrases and the instant merchandisability of the show and of course this makes sense because animated shows are pretty costly and time-consuming 
and the real money in any animated shows and the merchandise. And Rick and Morty is definitely designed to be merchandisable and also memeable because it entirely exists in sort of the meme era, and this is why it has a lot of nonsensical catchphrases. And even then, it tries to put some depth on it, right? Like, wubba lubba dub dub is supposed to mean I'm in great pain, but never they never follow up on that. And so even the depth or interiority is still sort of has this mercenary cynical air to the whole thing. They know that there's a cash grab element to it, which is all shows created for profit, but the problem is that people make the mistake of ascribing something more meaningful to it. Um, another key thing is its relationship to whiteness. So you can tell they do a little retcon thing by making Rick's name Rick Sanchez, and maybe that suggests a vague Latino identity to him, but, like, he's very white, and, you know, there are plenty of white Latinos out there, so it's not well thought through, and it always becomes obvious that, like, this is a very white writer's room. Um, all the, if there's any black characters, they're flat caricatures, like the high school teacher who is basically just Cleveland, but with a little deeper voice. As far as I understood, there are only two women of color that ever appear in the show, and they both end up having comedic violence committed against them, which is actually a recurring thing in a lot of edgy comedies where, like, women are just punched for no reason except for laughs, and somehow that is inherently funny. It's also representative of the kind of edgelord whiteness that acknowledges white supremacy but then positions itself above it and this is best represented in the episode where they throw a party at the house and summer uses a phrase and rick says that that phrase is offensive to an alien species but then a few minutes later those people show up and he says what's up my glib clops which is you know it positions Rick as so cool that he gets to say it, the interdimensional form of nigga, of course. Um, and what I think is often overlooked is that worldliness and the ability to transcend itself is actually a big part of white male subjectivity, like the paragons of white masculinity don't retreat into provincial racism, but instead they travel the globe and are able to effortlessly ingratiate themselves into subaltern cultures without ego death at all. And then they, you know, they even end up being able to dominate those cultures, right? Like dances with wolves or whatever. And in fact, the ability to do this is a hallmark of successful colonialism. Like, every successful colonial administrator in every colony has been able to ingratiate themselves and speak the language of the natives without losing their own status and subjectivity. And in fact, their ability to do this just ends up reinscribing their own superiority. So, this is a key subtext in Rick and Morty and Rick's intergalactic worldliness that makes him so goddamn cool. But the show is pretty intelligent and, you know, obviously very self-consciously so, but it engages with real issues, including class conflict 
understand the tendency on leftists to want to then attribute that to then like the show isn't actually that bad but the problem is that even though it engages with those things it doesn't offer any way out of it it doesn't show any actual rising up of subaltern or exploited identities and this is actually part of its hipness and the part of any sort of effective fascistic messaging is that it does acknowledge the contradictions of the society but it doesn't prescribe a way out of it that involves collective organizing by the exploited peoples so the best example of this is the car battery episode which admittedly does get a good dig at capitalism where they say oh that sounds like slavery no the thing is that you know people pay each other for a wage and then they're like that sounds like slavery with extra steps but it very quickly falls back into a human naturist mindset because it's just that in any reality exploitation is inherent fact of life even in ultimate even in alternate dimensions and the only way the masses could be aware of the exploitation is through an outside agitator with an exploitative agenda himself right so there's never any way to actually resist and overthrow an exploitative class and even in the presidential election episode in the third season where it kind of shows off its best sociological analysis where it sets up an interesting paradigm of rich supremacy and the resultant political economy it even goes to the level of the morty cop who willingly plays his role in preserving the rich supremacist exploitative system but once again there's no way out you know the closest you get is the obama-esque morty type who ends up being evil morty and as soon as he's in power institutes a totalitarian fascist regime and this is honestly highly pernicious it's kind of like zootopia which engages in a similar paradigm of exploitative political economy based around identity but then the marginalized people end up actually being the real enemy and being capable of more violence and destruction and evil than the ruling class and they also address it in the purge episode where they even have someone acknowledge that the purge is designed by the ruling class to pit you know the working class against itself in acts of violence but even after it overthrows and kills all the ruling class it then just evolves into the exact same level which is very counter-revolutionary and suggests that all revolutions are pointless and that is not lost on the audience one of the bigger problems is that i think leftists often make a mistake of assuming that reactionaries don't understand the basic truths of the society they live in and many of them do they just think that the solutions are worse than the problem itself the other sort of main motif is the enthusiastic mansplaining that goes on throughout basically every episode even morty who's obviously not very smart goes to great lengths to tell summer how stupid she is for having perfectly normal reactions to whatever situation she finds herself in and even though it hedges a little bit in the third season the damage is basically already done because the core fans of rick and morty have already internalized the earlier vibe 
And so they see that as the show's true vision and anything else is them bending to the liberal Hollywood SJW mafia. But beyond even the themes and motifs as the subjective experience of the show itself on the part of the viewer, because this is a show that is event viewing. It is the most significant show to really ever come out of Adult Swim as original programming, like like what Aqua Teen Hunger Force. That was fun, but it didn't. It never captured the zeitgeist in the same way, or any other Adult Swim show. So this really is a come up for Adult Swim and the demographic it's been nurturing because like it's. 10 episodes every two years. That's a ridiculous production schedule in the history of television. And part of it is honestly underachievement disguised as genius, which, curiously enough, does kind of describe Rick. The infrequency of the episodes makes each one seem all the more significant, even though stories aren't much deeper than your standard Saturday morning cartoon in terms of like the narrative complexity. And they go off the rails about as frequently as the average South Park episode. But I will say that the production values are very good. And and a note of contrast to the stick figure-like representations of Rick and Morty. And this does sort of suggest the rich inner world. I think that the production values give it more legitimacy. It's kind of like the visual equivalent of dropping a bunch of links in your argument to make it seem legitimate. So people think that this is an important show to watch, even though it's still a TV show where everything resets itself. They joke about character arcs in every season, but no one really has any. The closest you get is like Jerry and Beth in the third season, but there's still no real growth. But even then, it's being picked up for 70 more episodes. There are 70 more episodes of this thing to be watched. And at its current pace, I would take 14 years. And that's, it's almost impossible to keep a narrative thread that long. And this is, I think, what people do not want to realize, which is that Rick and Morty will never deliver on its promises of developing some sort of actual truth and function to the show, as though it actually has a story to tell. It is invariably just a bunch of jokes and nihilistic sci-fi as much as they can cram into 22 minutes. But I perhaps people don't care because the key point is really the escapist fantasy of the show itself more than any real truth of the characters. People like watching Rick be a badass and they like projecting themselves onto him. And what's interesting then is that actually this is sort of the first adult animated comedy to have a protagonist that is cool, right? Like, nobody wanted to be Homer Simpson or Peter Griffin or anyone in South Park or even Archer. But Rick is unalterably cool, and he always saves the days. And I don't think this show is going to destroy an entire generation of minds as much as to string them along, thinking that, like, they're going to get something out of this that they really won't. And hopefully they can realize that sooner than later and just give up and move on to something else. But in criticizing this show, we also raise some other questions for ourselves or for anyone who wants to be a creative person, content creator, 
in either the field of sci-fi or adult comedy cartoons, and what would a revolutionary sci-fi show or a revolutionary adult comedy cartoon look like? And I do think that Futurama provides a better example of how to merge the two. And one of the things I find interesting about Futurama is that it's not utopian or dystopian. It merely presents a vision of the future that has its own contradictions and problems, but also doesn't represent itself as this horrible, inevitable future of humanity. Um, and even when it gets philosophical, it doesn't just automatically lean into nihilism. If you think about like the episode where Bender becomes a god, the main struggle of that episode is that Bender develops pathos for the lives he creates, and he wants to know how to serve them. And that's compared to the car battery episode of, where Rick creates life an entire society, but his only concern is how to exploit them most effectively. I also think Bojack Horseman is a better example of how you can have an elderly male coded as white misanthropic subject without making excuses for him. But at the same time, I also get that like maybe we should abandon that subjectivity altogether because like, is there any real juice to another show about sad, pathetic, morally ambiguous elderly white men. But if there is, network executives are going to milk every last thing they can out of it. But from a more revolutionary perspective, if we are to engage with that, the best way is to show its inherent limitations and that there's nothing inherently tragic about its inability to reconcile with the world at large. Because... The white male bourgeois subjectivity is mostly defined by its solipsism and its inability to perceive any other subjectivities that are on its level, right? The lonely scientist who is trying his hardest to help humanity, but humanity just won't take to its to his great lessons and plans, right? The well-intentioned rational hero fails, and when he fails, it's a condemnation on reality itself. The world fails him. He doesn't even really fail. And by contrast, you have subaltern subjectivities that are always relational. They don't have the luxury of solipsism, and even if they are equally bleak in their assessment of the world or humanity, they don't see it as tragic, just a given fact, and one they must adapt themselves to in pursuit of their goals. This is, coincidentally, why every American hero up until the neoliberal era had to have a working-class background, and that's sort of why he could be heroic, from, like, John Henry to George Bailey. And it's only in the past few decades in the neoliberal era where you see rich people become heroes themselves, from, like, Steve Jobs to Batman becoming cooler and the coolest superhero there. Even... Cold War era spy movies were more about the technological superiority of the state, but those have shifted to cool gadgets being the province of eccentric billionaires. I think even you could trace the power struggle through the Bush era where you still had movies where billionaires were villains to the Obama era where billionaires and rich people then be actually had a heroic subjectivity. But even then, it's reaching its endgame. Because 
rooting for billionaires is hard. And the challenge we face is clawing ourselves back from that without returning to a sort of settlerist, white, pseudo-proletarian hero of the past. And I think what we have to do is showcase the endgame by demonstrating the inability of that subjectivity to understand humanity as a whole, but also that humanity is a project that can't be given up on. You could perhaps make an argument that Rick and Morty is the first show of the Trump era in the way that it showcases this nihilism and retreating without a vision of actual collective liberation. You have the eager elite of the 2000s of TED Talks and Project Red and Bono and all that shit. They're discovering their efforts didn't work and they're threatening to pull the plug if the world doesn't get back in line. I think a better place is to focus on self-organizing activity by communities in response to the wreckage wrought by that order is a good place to start. And if we're going to engage with that sort of old dominant subjectivity of the white bourgeois heterosexual man, it would have to involve genuine ego death. But that's just from the dramatic element. As for the comedic aspect, and I know people say you can't explain comedy, but that's kind of crap. Instead of nihilistic humor or humor that rests on how stupid humans are, you have to have a laughter that is based in the genuine absurdity of existence, but more specifically in the way the ruling class tries to define existence, that, that these guys really do keep trying it, that they really do think that this shit is going to work. And there's sort of the ongoing debate about should comedy punch up or punch down, and, and wow... Everyone says you can't punch down, right? Those comedians will still do it because it will work because there is a latent reactionary fascist element in everyone. And denying it all the time just leads to a more powerful release in the form of laughter. But while punching up is, you know, important, I also think that a revolutionary comedy would actually be punching down in the sense that it has to assume its superiority to ridicule the ruling class into submission. And so it's the whole court jester telling the truth thing is kind of crap because the court jester still works for the king. And so you have to sort of think about like a comedian that is rallying the peasant armies before they storm the castle. And that's kind of more the position you have to get. And you have to think, and you have to contrast that to sort of the post-Carlin humor of 90s, early 2000s comics that insist they're not punching down because they're punching in all directions, right? Like, I, I make fun of everyone, so, you know, what's the big deal? And even the neoliberal, self-effacing kind of Tumblr humor that it's too scared to punch everyone except themselves, which is most of the new comedy shows in the mold of The Daily Show. So this revolutionary comedy would have to be more joyous. It's a comedy that breathes deeply. It celebrates life, actually, instead of just being reactive. And it is that celebration of life that gives the jabs their strength. And it's a laughter that's kind of a little bit more menacing. And that's the direction we have to be working towards. In terms of examples, I do actually think that Street Fight is one of the best at portraying that liberated interiority that sees the ruling class as inherently pathetic. Um, 
Chavo Trap House sometimes gets at that, but it still seems mired in its own liberalism, though. Perhaps it's trying to work its way out of that. Street Fight, of course, is an anarchist comedy. It started out as a radio show, but I guess now it's a podcast that you can pretty easily look up. It's from Columbus, Ohio. Shout out! So anyway, I hope this was instructive for you all, that you've gleaned enough to be able to come back for the next episode, and that I'll be taking on Takashi 69 the RICO law, and the neoliberal state. After that, the Khmer Rouge. So let it not be said that we won't be going there. We'll probably be alternating it every week with either a historical topic or a current one. And once we get the initial operation up and running, I'll be figuring out how to interview people, mostly friends and regular cats that I think are interesting. We won't want it, We don't want it to be too didactic. At the most optimistic, you'll get to watch the real-time formation of an ideology for revolution in this U.S. of A-occupied Turtle Island. At worst, you get to watch a mind self-destruct. Either way, it should be good listening, so subscribe, I guess. Not planning on monetizing in the near future, but if it pops off, like, nobody wants to be working in the service sector, really, so. And yes, in case you're wondering, I'm still working on the novel. It's more of a side project, so I don't pile all of my self-worth into something that's probably going to take at least a couple of years before it's even realized. So, yeah. Clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. Right? So that's all we got for this week, and solidarity, and don't let the bastards win, and death to America. That's all. Tell me something different. Yeah.